Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts, Brian Hancock and Brooke Weddle. I'm Lucia Rahili. Is empathy really relevant in the workplace? Jamil Zaki says, definitely. He's a Stanford associate professor and author of the book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. I want to be really clear that in performance management, empathy is not the same as being quote unquote soft on people. In fact, the kindest and most empathic thing that you can do for somebody is tell them what they need to hear to grow. Jamil joins us today to make the case for empathy as an essential component to improving productivity, innovation, and connection in the workplace. Jamil, welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent. Thanks for having me. So let's start with some context. Empathy is one of those terms I think that well-intended folks, you know, sling about like cash in a diner. But you are a research psychologist. When you use the word empathy, what do you mean? The way that researchers think about it is that this confusion arises because empathy isn't actually one thing at all. It's an umbrella term that describes at least three ways that we connect with other people's emotions. So if you imagine the last time that you spent time with a friend who was really going through a lot, maybe they were really upset or in anguish, well, a bunch of things might happen in you while you're with them. First, you might feel upset yourself, vicariously catching their emotions, which we would call emotional empathy or emotion contagion. You might also try to figure out what your friend is feeling and why, which we would call cognitive empathy. And uh, at least if you're a good friend, you probably care about what they are going through and might wish for them to feel better, which we would call empathic concern or compassion. And these three pieces of empathy can split apart sometimes, and they have different uses in our lives and in our workplaces. But together, they make up the full range of human empathy. And your book is called The War for Kindness. How is empathy either different from or related to kindness? Empathy is an experience. Kindness is a behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Kindness are the things that we do that benefit other people. And there are lots of reasons you might act kindly. You might help your friend move because you owe them and you might hate it every minute, or you might help them because you care for them. In the second case, it's empathy that's leading to kindness. And there's all sorts of evidence that when we are inspired to feel empathy, even for a moment, we help people, either people in our lives or even strangers, for instance, by volunteering or donating to charity. And so this is a business podcast, and it's fashionable to talk about empathetic leadership. But when we look around, we tend to see a lot of examples in the business world of successful leaders who seem pretty unlikely to be doing loving kindness meditation on any kind of regular (laughs) cadence. And the louder buzzwords in the business world tend to be around concepts like innovation, for example. So why does empathy really matter in the workplace? When I train uh, leaders in various organizations in empathy, this is one of the first hurdles that I need to get over is this kind of old, creaky stereotype that, yeah, empathy sounds great for your friends and family, but in the hard-charging, competitive world of work, maybe it's too soft and squishy. Maybe it's even a weakness. 
Uh, it's really easy to debunk that. There's at this point decades of evidence from all over the behavioral sciences showing that empathy is not a weakness in the workplace. It's more like a workplace superpower. Employees who believe that their organizations and especially their managers are empathic tend to call in sick less often with stress-related illnesses. They report less burnout. They report greater mental health, morale, and intent to stay at their organization. Here's the other piece, though. They do better also in terms of their work. People who feel empathized with, who feel seen and heard at work, also tend to do, guess what, innovate more, right? Take creative risks. I've seen in, the, in 2023, a lot of leaders talking about this as a year of efficiency. And I think that one giant mistake that people make is assuming that being efficient means kind of tuning out emotionally, trying to disconnect from people so that you can work them harder, <laughs> when in fact, that's a great way to, uh, to make work less efficient. But when people feel connected to their colleagues and to their leaders, they actually work harder, faster, uh, and more creatively. And, and what, what you've shared lines up nicely with some of the research that we've done, in particular around managers. In your book, The War for Kindness, you talk about the ability to, in some ways, increase the capacity of individuals to be empathetic. And if we think about managers as being some of the people we most want to be empathetic, people that are, you know, as you were saying, you know, critical to that experience, how can we think about increasing the capacity for empathy among our managers. The first is this idea of managers spending more time trying to connect with the people in their groups. I think that is so vital and often overlooked. Again, in this quest for efficiency, we often uh, ignore what actually allows us to be efficient at a deep level. We think, well, I don't have the time to sit with my employee and ask them how their life is going. I don't want to turn work into a therapy session. And that's fine. But it turns out that that might be the most efficient use of your time possible because if people feel connected, then they actually work, again, as I've been saying, more efficiently. Now, to your question, this idea of empathy as a skill is one that I've been working on for most of my career at this point. You know, I've, I think once we establish that empathy is useful, that it's something that we might want in our workplace, the second question is, well, how do we get it? And a lot of folks have this, again, stereotype that empathy is a fixed trait, something that you either have or you don't have. In my work and in my lab and lots of other labs, scientists have found that, in fact, empathy is more like a skill, something that we can build and work on the same way that we would try to build any other skill. So, Jamil, why now? You mentioned you've been working on empathy for most of your career. In some weird way, we're all sort of more visible to each other than ever before. We've got access to each other's stories through social media and digital platforms. What does your research show about empathy levels now versus at earlier periods? The news as of a few years ago was not very good. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're really putting your finger on the pulse here that there are a number of trends in our culture that were supposed to connect us more and might have had the opposite effect. There's evidence that during the time that social media has been really, you know, has taken over so much of our lives, people's empathy has also dropped. You know, for instance, the average American college student in 2009 reported being less empathic than 75% of college students 
just 30 years before. Wow. So it's a big drop. Yeah, a big drop in how much we say we care about one another. Now, whether social media is the culprit or something else is, it's impossible to say because you know history is not an experiment. But there's definitely these trends that seem like they're pulling us apart instead of bringing us together. How do you think about measuring empathy? What are some of the, the metrics you're looking at when you're measuring empathy and how that has changed over time? The decrease in empathy that I was just talking about is a decrease in self-reported empathy. And that's really you know, as psychologists, when we want to find out about a person, the most common thing that we do is ask them about themselves. Now, you might not trust what they tell you, though. One thing that you can do is not just ask a person how empathic they are, but ask the people in their lives or their workplaces to get a for, sort of 360 view of a person's care. In our lab, we use other measures as well. We use uh, behavioral tests, for instance, showing people videos of somebody describing an emotional event and asking them to guess what the person feels and comparing their guesses against what the person in the video said they felt. We also use biological measures, for instance, scanning people's brains while they watch other people in pain and seeing whether parts of their brain that are associated with pain, quote unquote, light up when they see it in somebody else. And, you know, the good news here is that although none of these measures are perfect, they tend to converge. So if you are a person who says you're empathic, well, then you tend to also be a person who other people find empathic. You tend to be pretty good at picking out emotions in other people. You tend to act more kindly, and you tend to show biological signs of empathy as well. So we, we use as many measures as we can wherever we are, and generally those tend to give us a pretty good picture of a person. That's super interesting in part because I hadn't thought of empathy as context-specific, and I'm wondering, mm. I mean, people can be really empathic with their kids and not at work or vice versa, right? Um, <laughs> yes. in, depending on context, people behave differently or have different, exhibit different levels of compassion. How do you think our broader culture, which is so acutely polarized at the moment, affects the way empathy is positioned as a norm. Really, everywhere we go, we are moving from culture to culture. And those cultures shape us at every level, especially in terms of our behavior and our minds. And I think you're right. When people experience a contentious or polarized or cynical environment, well, then empathy starts to feel unsafe, unpopular, maybe counterproductive. And you see this you know, not just from work to home and back again, but from workplace to workplace or team to team. And there are lots of cases in which people actually underestimate the popularity of empathy in their own community. In fact, I've done this at a whole bunch of companies and hospital systems, school systems. One thing that I often ask people is, hey, how empathic are you and how empathic do you think the average person on in this group is, whether it's a team, organization, school, whatever? And this produces two answers, right? One is the average of what people say about themselves. That's the true average of empathy in the group. The other is the imagined average, what they think their average colleague or classmate feels. And it turns out these numbers are totally different in almost every 
organization that I've surveyed, people are more empathic than they think they are, right? That the, the real average is much higher than the imagined one. It, it, it's interesting because one of the things I've been thinking about reflecting on your work is the connection between psychological safety and empathy. And the way I initially thought about it was maybe if you've got more empathetic managers, you'd have a team that's more psychologically safe where people can raise ideas and other things without being feeling that they will be shot down or, or threatened in some way. But what I hear you saying is it's also working in the reverse, like psychological safety can help the true empathy sitting within people to come out more. Yeah, I think you nailed it, right? I mean, there's a vicious cycle where when people feel psychologically unsafe, they're less likely to express their empathy and less likely to see each other's and therefore feel even less psychologically safe. But mindful leaders can reverse that and turn it into a virtuous cycle whereby, exactly as you describe, when people feel safe, they're more willing to be creative with their own work, but also more willing to ex express care for each other, which increases psychological safety even more. You know, one of the things that I often tell managers to do if they want to kick off that process, which is really hard for them to do in some cases, is to be vulnerable first. As we've been talking about, every space we're in has its own culture. Managers set the culture of their teams. And so people look to them to see, well, what's normal here? So oftentimes when people are willing to create spaces to express themselves, they need to start first. So that might be an interesting segue to the sort of practicality of the how that Brian was getting at, how leaders can begin to normalize empathic behavior in the workplace? And what are some first steps? It's important to simply know that empathy is something that you can work on, right? If you feel as though you can't change, then there's really no point in trying. Once that's established, there's a bunch of things that I think are important. The first is, I think a lot of leaders think that in order to create a more empathic culture, they need to take some gigantic swing. We all need to spend the day volunteering together or, you know, I'm going to roll out this new policy that's meant to really show how much I care. And those are great things to do. You know, big single events are, are great. But empathy, like any other skill, requires habitual practice, right? So, you know, I try to give leaders and organizations prompts that they can use when they're giving feedback or having one-on-ones or team meetings, just little ways to rotate their approach to those conversations to infuse more empathy in them, for instance, by asking more questions or asking better questions. Another thing, you know, to your question about, well, how, how do we create cultures that are more empathic? One really simple but often difficult thing to do is to rethink how we reward people and what we center in our conversations. I think there's a lot of social norms are to reward people and talk about people based on their individual performance. This person really crushed it at this task. And that's great. People should be crushing it. But it's also important when we see somebody acting compassionately or empathically to call that out in a positive way to say, wow, you know, you really showed up for other members of this team. So sort of centering empathic behaviors, making them really loud inside the culture of a team or organization can help people realize, wow, this is what's normative. This is what's appreciated and what's rewarded here. One of the things that we've seen in our research on managers is they are pressed for time. 
they spend more than half of their time doing things other than people leadership. In your research, you show that time pressure reduces empathy. Can you share some of the stories behind your research on time pressure and empathy and then maybe extrapolate that, what that means of how we might have need to reimagine managers' roles to give them more space to be empathetic? There's a very famous study that established this that is, you know, both funny and sad called the Good Samaritan Study. This was conducted, I believe, at Princeton with seminary students. And these students were told to prepare a lecture on the Good Samaritan, which is, of course, a parable about a person helping a stranger in need. Then they were told, okay, you're going to give this sermon, this other building that's across campus. And in some cases, these seminary students were told, you've got plenty of time. So just take your time, walk over there and deliver the sermon. In other cases, they were told, hey, you are late. We're so sorry. We screwed something up, but people are already waiting for you. You have to go. And so that was the manipulation, whether people were in a hurry or not. As people, as these students walked or I guess sprinted across campus, they noticed a person who was at like sort of in the doorway of the building they were trying to enter. And this person might have been unhoused. They might have been sick. They just were clearly struggling. And that person was actually an actor who was determining or measuring whether the seminary students stopped to help them. And if I recall correctly, I think these numbers are right. When people, these students were not in a hurry, more than 70% of them stopped to help this person. And when they were in a hurry, I believe it was only 10% of them stopped, which is, you know, a rich irony. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> lecture on the Good Samaritan. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a classic for a reason, you know, but so what do we do about this? I would think that we do have to re-envision management to maybe give managers fewer people to work with, but working with them more closely or to offload some of the other non-human centric tasks onto, I don't know, chat GPT or some other large language model so that managers can focus on mentorship more than they uh, are able to now. I love that and and very consistent with with some of our thinking on managers. In some organizations, compassion fatigue is a real thing. Being almost too empathetic in the face of tough situations every day. Can you shed a little light onto this idea of compassion fatigue and what leaders can do to help alleviate some of that compassion fatigue among their frontline employees? Oh, yes, absolutely. And yeah, I'm really happy to talk about this because oftentimes when I describe empathy as a skill that we can build and grow, the implication is that we should all empathize as much as possible all the time. That is not what I'm saying. Empathizing wisely is not the same as turning your empathy to, you know, up to 11 all the time and maxing out. And there's lots of reasons for that, including exactly what you're talking about, compassion fatigue. In fact, I had the experience of witnessing a lot of compassion fatigue myself. One of my wife and my daughters, our older daughter, was very sick when she was born and spent a lot of time at a NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit. And we really got to know the doctors there and the nurses and social workers. They were all heroes to us. And afterwards, from my book, I went and shadowed the staff at that NICU. And I saw how, again, heroic they were but also just how much they were suffering. And there was this almost martyr mentality that I saw in these healthcare workers where the amount that they were sacrificing their own well-being was almost like a signal about how much they cared for their job and for their patients, which I think is a pretty toxic 
social norm. Now, what can we do about that, whether we're healthcare workers or managers who are burning out from empathizing with the folks on our team who we also care about? Well, there's a few things. One is to remember that in order to be there for other people, we must be there for ourselves. You know, there's all sorts of evidence that when people when people experience and practice self-compassion, that is treating themselves with the same care that they would a loved one, well, that makes them more effective at being there for other people in a sustainable way. The second thing that I'd say goes back to the conversation we we're having about the definition of empathy. You remember that I said there were three pieces of empathy. One of those is taking on other people's emotions. The other, compassion, is caring for people without feeling what they do. And it turns out that the first of those, emotional empathy, is a risk factor for burnout among healthcare workers. But the second one, compassion or empathic concern, is a protective factor against burnout. So I know that they sound similar, but when we can be there for people without sort of taking on their pain, keeping a sort of psychological boundary up, even while we express genuine care, that can be a lot more sustainable than really taking on everything that everybody around us feels. What about the the other side of the spectrum? We are all or we have been in workplaces where there are jerks. There are people who are deeply non-empathetic. How do you hold those people accountable for empathy? I want to reemphasize that people are molded by their culture. People don't want to stick out usually. I mean, we conform for better and for worse. And so the more that a manager emphasizes and talks about and rewards kindness and empathy on their team, the harder it is for even a jerky person to behave in uh, to, to behave in an unfriendly and unkind manner. It just becomes uncomfortable for them to act in a way that's so counter-normative. Another thing that I would say is when somebody is acting out, it's really powerful when instead of retaliating or fighting back, we can become curious about that person. Oftentimes, people's behavior doesn't match what's inside them. Someone might seem bored when they're actually anxious, or they might seem angry when they're actually sad. And oftentimes, when people act in ways we don't like, it's because they're in pain. So showing some curiosity, trying to get to the bottom of what's going on with them can be really powerful if we have the bandwidth for that. Finally, there's something that my friend, the activist Loretta Ross talks about that I love, which is calling in instead of calling out. And it kind of mixes the themes that I've been telling you about. You know, calling somebody out is, of course, when we describe their bad behavior and as the kids would say, put them on blast, you know, just really just really <laughs> talk about how terrible they are. And that's really alienating and can cause people to harden and double down. Calling in is what Loretta describes as calling out with love where you say, hey, you know, I think you're a really good person based on, you know, the years that we spent together. You're kind of acting in a way that's inconsistent with that. <laughs> What's up with that? How do I square what you're doing right now with the virtues I know you have? And Loretta has found in extreme situations, like, I mean, for instance, talking with KKK members, she as a black woman talking with KKK members, that she, when she has the bravery to use this kind of calling in technique, She's found that that actually can change people's minds at a fundamental level. I mean, she's converted people away 
from white supremacy using tactics like this. Are there other downside risks or guardrails that we have to think about? I tend to think of empathy as a universally positive aspiration. But how does something like bias factor into empathic response? Don't we tend to empathize with people more easily who are more like us, especially in, you know, sort of complex or morally ambiguous situations? So it's really important to be mindful of the way that our empathy is directing us and whether it lines up with our values. I think that most of the time it does. But during these moments where we we see it guiding us in other directions, there are two things that we can do. One is to try to make decisions, especially moral decisions, from a more, uh, I guess, logical place, to try to reason out what is the right thing to do here. And if it doesn't match up with our emotions, well, then consider doing it anyways. The second, though, is to try to broaden our empathy. If you find yourself caring for one of your colleagues more than the other, try to spend more time with the other one. Uh, if you find that it's easier to connect with people who you know, are of your generation instead of a generation older or younger than yours, try to tap in to what are the experiences of people from different age groups than my own, right? I think that oftentimes we can even out our empathy instead of just pointing it at particular people or groups. One of the areas that we talk about a lot on this podcast is performance management. And it's also an area where bias obviously comes into play and has to be monitored and watched for and rooted out. Certain nudges can be used within the performance management process in the business setting. I wondered if you could say more about that. I happen to be a huge NBA fan. And one of my favorite players is Chris Paul. He's a great individual player, but there's this thing called the Chris Paul effect, where within two years of Chris Paul joining your team, and this happened four times, your team has the best record it's ever had, right? <laughs> and that's because he makes other people around him better. I would love to see in performance management people, I mean, we are so data driven, right? I mean, we're in the money ball age of performance management already. I think it would be really powerful and useful. And I wish more companies did this if we could observe the effect of a person when they join a team or when they join an organization on the people around them and reward that as a piece of performance management. The other thing that I want to just quickly describe is that I often hear people tell me that empathizing with their employees would mean not holding them accountable to a high standard. I want to be really clear that in performance management, empathy is not the same as being quote unquote soft on people. In fact, the kindest and most empathic thing that you can do for somebody is tell them what they need to hear to grow. I want to ask you a broader question, which is, you know, when you think about companies that have applied a different set of practices to grow this empathy muscle, as you've been talking about, are there any examples out there, whether named or not, of companies that have gone through an empathy transformation, right? And and what like what, what did that look like end to end? Anything come to mind? Yes. There's one large organization that I profiled that went through a leadership change in let's say the early 2010s. And it was known far and wide around you know, the, the tech sector for being a brutal workplace. It used, for instance, what so-called rank and yank, where people were stacked up for, for their performance. And no matter how good your team was, the bottom 20% of folks on your team had to be either put on warning or laid off. 
the incentive structures were all highly individualized. The new leadership didn't like this approach at all and reformed a bunch of their practices. They removed rank and yank. But more than that, they started, although they didn't go full Chris Paul, which I would love still to see more organizations do, they, they did look at for more collaborative targets for rewards and, and promotion. They also started listening more systematically. And that's something that we haven't talked too much about yet. But, you know, empathy comes not from the things we say, but from the questions we ask and the way that we pay attention to others. So this organization implemented a much more full spectrum and frequent sort of pulse survey of their people, just gauging how folks were feeling, what they needed, what they were struggling with, and they showed concrete support and responsiveness. Another example that I would give would be from one of my own clients, again, but they're another large tech company. And what they did was invest in teaching soft skills. As I always say, to build empathy, you really need to change your day-to-day practices. And what I love about what this client did is they brought myself and a few other experts in the behavioral sciences in, and really designed a curriculum, basically a a management academy that focused on building trust, on building empathy. And we had lots of time with these folks, and we were able to give them particular skills to practice, have them practice those skills, come back, tell us how it went, workshop it in the room, you know, basically, again, to take seriously that this is a trainable skill and one that's worth investing in. And we found that those managers, you know, their NPS, you know, their net promoter scores improved twice as fast as managers in a sort of so-called placebo group. So I think that investing in this type of training and also listening effectively to the people in your organization, those are two ways that I've seen organizations turn turn around and really build empathy into their structures. I'd love to get your take on the capacity for LLMs to show empathy. One of the very interesting uh, things that came out, you know, a few months ago from the from SHRM, the Society for HR Management, looked at 10 different communications that the LLM created for an HR manager to give to an employee. And then they had real HR managers kind of rank them. And the one that ranked best was you're under investigation because it required no empathy. It was just the facts. You have investigation. Here's like, they're like, yep, you nailed that one. But any of the ones that actually required empathy or the situation, it was off. LLMs are frighteningly good at mimicking empathy. I know somebody who has an online platform where people can go to share struggles that they're experiencing and then receive support from anonymous others. And on this website, the creator of it tried to give people support using LLMs instead of random strangers online. And people rated the support from LLMs as more responsive and more thoughtful than responses that came from people until they found out that they came from LLMs at which point they revolted. They really didn't like to be supported by a computer. And that's that's to me the really complicated thing here is that LLMs can create artificial empathy. And so I think that there is almost an uncanny valley, emotionally speaking, where the appearance of empathy, I hope, won't replace the actual experience of it because it almost seems like empty social calories in a way. But I think that, you know, this is all... LLMs are able to already produce artificial empathy pretty well without knowing anything about us as individuals, right? They're trained on 
general data from the internet. But soon, I think people will release their own data to a personalized LLM that will become, you know, like an artificial friend and will read all of the emails you've ever written and all of the social media posts you've ever written. And the level of artificial empathy those models will be able to produce honestly frightens me a little bit because I wonder whether it will feel so real that people will withdraw more from one another. So that's the kind of, to me, scary version of things. And then the much less scary version is LLMs giving us room to actually appreciate each other more by maybe taking some tasks off of our plate. So two very different futures that could lay ahead of us. One of which feels like a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I you're know. not wrong. <laughs> so so, so I, I, ha- I have one question that, that I think I would be, you know, on this topic and on the research, you know, remiss if I didn't raise up. One of my mentors at McKinsey is a guy named Felix Brook, and his wife, Ann Cal Smith, is CEO of an organization that was called Books at Work and is now called Reflection Point. And what they do is they take frontline workers – and they take great works of literature, and they have a conversation. And Mm. the purpose of that in the workplace is to create greater empathy among frontline workers. So these are not folks that would have, you know, gone to Stanford and had the choice of an excellent, you know, English class or engineering. These are folks that haven't had that opportunity. And they find incredible results in terms of increased empathy, in terms of the team building, and they get really cool stories coming out of it. I know you've mentioned in your work, uh, you know, and as you said, fiction is empathy's gateway drug. What do you think of companies spending precious time and resource having frontline employees do things like read works of literature to improve empathy? I I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. And again, I'm going to say it, I'm, I'm repeating myself and I don't care. It's efficient. It's a very efficient way to build culture. It sounds like what a waste of time. You're going to sit there reading novels and talking (laughs) about them. Yes. Yes, you are. And that's probably going to make people trust each other more, know each other better, and work more effectively together. You know, I think one of the other things that this uh, amazing uh, sort of example brings up for me is that some of the most cutting edge ways to practice empathy are hundreds or thousands of years old. Thank you so much, Jamil Zaki. Thanks for joining McKinsey Talks Talent. It's been a total pleasure. Thanks to you all for the great questions and great conversation. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Brooke Weddle. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time and be well. 